Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me. Um, as I always like to do, I like to start off with a little story that sort of uh, connects to a guest that I have in some sixth degree of separation way. And my guest today, uh, Mike Farah, uh, he's the president of Funny or Die, the production of Funny or Die, and um, is involved in all this kind of stuff that they're doing uh, that's truly amazing. But when I started um, in Boston... Um, sketch comedy was something that I really didn't understand. I really couldn't get around it. I really couldn't figure out people were making these films with these, you know, cameras that were the size of Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, they were showing them to me on, you know, three quarter inch tapes. And, and I was responsible for booking a lot of uh, different shows. And, and I remember, um, a group called cross comedy, to uh, work on uh, Thursday nights at one of the clubs that I was working at. It was David Cross and, and John Benjamin and, and Jonathan Groff who uh, have gone on to do amazing things. Um, and I'd always used to sit in the crowd and watch, and they had this loyal following. It was never sold out, but they had this loyal following of about a third of the club. And I'd be sitting there, and they'd be killing. And I'd be like, I, 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 I must really not understand what's going on here and they all had this like dark vibe about them like literally like somebody touched them in a sandbox when they were four and they never let the world forget it you know they had this kind of way about them 
but this dark artist way. But there was something special going on, and I I I always kept it going, even though I didn't understand. Later on, I uh, booked a lot of improv. A group called Guilty Children, and a group called Al and the Monkeys, which was Dane Cook and um, Robert Kelly, and um, and uh, and a bunch of other great uh, comedians. And as I moved to New York, I noticed more and more of these alternative performers. I would, you know, go to Surf Reality, which was literally like somebody's apartment in the East Village, it seemed, with chairs set up. And I'd see these shows, and it would blow me away uh, what these people were doing. Like the Scalar Brothers, for instance, had this show that was so amazing. They would do a sitcom every week, including commercials that they made up for 30 minutes. And the opening of the show would be the 30-minute show they did the week before, and then there'd be a break, and then they'd do a new show. And then the following week, that, that show that was the new show would be the opening to the following. And every week, they would write a new thing and perform it. It was credible, and they, and they filmed it. But, you know, it never went anywhere. They never did anything with it. They had these short films that they did as commercial parodies that played on these TVs that they probably lugged up the stairs with the tubes. And, uh, and but again, nobody was really doing anything with it or understanding any, anything with it. It was their own sort of niche of, of things that they were doing. And there was this young guy uh, who used to work at a club called Stand Up New York uh, who was managed by Carrie Hoffman. And he was this young, you know, sort of overweight kid, baby face. And he, you know, he had a combination of stand-up and, and alternative material that was so unique and special. But, you know, he never really got his, his props in terms of what he was doing. And at the time, I was fortunate enough or lucky enough to... Uh, be able to get Lorne Michael and Mar Marcy Klein's attention and, and, and get four people on Saturday Night Live when I really probably didn't even know what I was doing. I was just persistent and I believed in certain people. And the people that I got on the show were not those kind of sketch people. They were like stand-up people who I believed had the ability to do that. And I remember, you know, one time I was coming uh, into a Saturday Night Live party, which is a party that they have after Saturday Night Live to celebrate things. And and I was about to walk in the door. And what often happens, you're about to walk in, there's always people outside trying to get in. Young comedians, people of all walks of life or whatever. And I remember I was walking in this one day and this, you know, baby-faced, you know, sort of pudgy kid who I remembered from stand-up New York, was such a great alternative comedian. Um, he says, Barry, could you could you come here for a second? I want to talk to you about something. I said, sure, what, what's up? He said, listen, um, I'll give you $1,000 if you get me an audition for Saturday Night Live. And I said, uh, listen, uh, I'm... I'm flattered, but I, I, you know, I can't do that. You know, why don't you just, you know, talk to your manager and your agent and, and hopefully they'll be able to get you an audition. And I shook his hand and I walked into the Saturday Night Live party. And as I share this story with all of you listening today, I realized that that 
man never got a chance to be a cast member on Saturday Night Live like he always wanted to be. But because of his persistence and his drive and his talent, he got to do something better. And in the past four years, he's hosted SNL three times. That young baby face kid's name, Zach Galifianakis. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. The moment. I've been waiting for for a long time an audience with the Pope of sketch comedy online. Unbelievable guy that a young, strapping, good-looking man that I'm about to introduce right now is uh, basically the president of production for Funny or Die, the gold standard of anything having to do with uh, comedy and sketch and short and digital film online. Uh, an amazing man. He uh, was named uh, by the Hollywood Reporter as one of the top 35 executives under 35. His resume is literally the size of War and Peace. If I were to go through this with you guys, we would be here till 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. But we're not going to do that, but we're going to talk a lot of things. And I am honored and excited to introduce to you Mike Farah. Thank you, Barry. It's a, I'm honored and excited to be here. Well, we're going to have a good time today. We're going to talk about a lot of different stuff, but let's just jump into, uh, I want to take our uh, listeners and, and, and the people watching into what it takes to get to where you want to go. Now, here you are, you're in a situation where um, you're working with arguably two of the greatest comedy minds in the business and Will Ferrell and um, Adam McKay, mm -hmm. yet you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. So take me through where you started uh, thinking about show business, how you got to the level you are, but more importantly, the inroads of what happened along the way to get to the point where you got this gig. All right. Well, where to begin? Well, um, I'm from Michigan originally, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, I had, when I moved out here, I've been out here now over 12 years. And when I moved out here, I didn't know anyone or anything. So it was very much a uh, grassroots thing. Now, when you moved out here, you went to school in Ann Arbor for what? Well, my it's my whole family went to Michigan. I'm a big Michigan fan. I actually went to Indiana University, and I got a finance degree. And the only thing I did know is that I wanted nothing to do with the world of finance. So I had had an internship that was <laughs> actually 
it was one of the most important summers of my life because it taught me that that was the last thing I would ever want to do. And uh, an internship I, in finance. In finance, yes. And uh, many of the interns working for me are looking at the same thing, saying, "This is the last time I want to be in show business." Interning <laughs> yeah, here. Well, fair enough. At least they got a taste. Uh, and yeah, that was just not for me. And I, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I always loved movies growing up. And but growing up. I you know I was in a movie. What was your favorite a... movie growing up? The one where you looked at yourself, and this is the this is the my favorite movie of all time growing up. Uh, <laughs> well, kind of a, a a generic choice, but I would say Shawshank Redemption. Okay. I thought you were going to say Caligula. Though growing up, our, our fondness of movies did uh, lend itself to renting lots of. Uh, just remember, like those erotic thrillers from like the 90s starring like shannon worry and people like uh -huh. that we would rent literally all of those uh and so, watch them as a family no we'd watch them like because <laughs> we didn't have cable so we couldn't even get like skinamax or something like that or showtime like when red shoe dyers is on so we'd like you'd have to look at imdb but there were just all there was actually a legitimate genre of erotic thrillers and me and my hornball friends went through all of them because we also couldn't get into the, the some people don't even probably remember video stores but remember how there'd be like uh, a small room with all their real porn i remember because i spent a lot of time yeah there. but see where in ann arbor they would have like guards like outside the porn rooms but they would have like the erotic thrillers and like the suspense section so we uh it's so odd you know i i just you know if you were to say if anyone were to say to me okay you're gonna interview mike farah and uh this is the guy who's the president of production of funny or die and erotic thrillers is going to be the thing that inspired him to get into this business it, i would never have thought that well i don't know if erotic thrillers uh we somehow started talking oh it's because you brought up caligula <laughs> i wasn't a, i wasn't i didn't know what caligula was until like i saw the behind the music on def leopard and they talked about like how all their orgies were like a scene out of caligula and we, there was no internet then, so you couldn't just go online and search Caligula. Like we had to, like you had to work hard to find out what Caligula was. We you might have to look at that on the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, exactly. Your library. It's just, so, so I blame you for why Shannon Worry entered this uh, this conversation. You're gonna but, blame me a lot during. All this, right, so. that's fair enough. So yeah, I love Shawshank. I mean, that, that actually, <laughs> how was that for a segue? Uh, well, 1994 was actually a huge, I was 15 in 1994 and, and four of my, still my favorite movies of all time came out then Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Hoop Dreams and, uh, Forrest Gump. Uh, so those all still mean a lot to me. And I, so I didn't know anything. I didn't even know you could have a career in entertainment. Like I didn't even know what credits meant. Like you, the credits were just things that you skipped because you, why would you want to watch credits? Um, and, and you know, I don't know what happened, but after, you know, that internship at IU, I was like, I got to figure out something else to do. And I still remember it because I went, you know, when you're getting ready to like graduate, you know, parents are coming in, people are asking you what you're going to do. And I still remember going out to, to dinner with a, a friend of mine, uh, James Frank Parker, who is a very successful financial planner in Columbus, Ohio now. And his mom was uh, you know, kind of a bigwig at Ohio University. She was like uh, on the board of regents or whatever. And we went out to dinner and she's just like, so, Michael, what are you going to do after graduating? And I said, I'm going to move to Hollywood. And she just like literally dropped her fork and looked at me and said, well, 
I hope you have a better plan than that. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't. So, <laughs> so I don't want to think about but it. But you were moving the Hollywood in your mind. The purpose of moving the Hollywood was why? Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I had nothing else better to do. But was there a specific thing where the vision, like, okay, I'm moving to Hollywood and I was I'm just, going to get I, a job I, yeah, where? I, no, I I didn't think about any of that. I thought, well, I've always liked movies. My parents always they they were both had their own businesses. They loved what they did. And I was just like, oh well, maybe Hollywood something will happen out there. So I picked. So you just took the so you just took the risk. You took the risk and you went. Yes, I packed up and drove across the country and moved in with a total stranger. And and within two weeks, I felt very fortunate because within two weeks, I knew I was never going to leave. And, and, and that, that sounds cheesy, but it's true. I was just like, I can't believe people get paid to do these things. I thought like, you were going to say within two weeks, I learned that I'm never going to move in with a stranger. I uh, <laughs> well, that, did, that didn't last long either, but it was a gr- grassroots, like, but I felt so, I really felt fortunate. Like I, I went after school, I saved up money and I came out with a working car and, and, uh, and I met, cause I met, oh yeah, that's what happened. I met this kid who was also in finance, who's a really nice guy, but kind of just like, one of those dudes who everyone was nice to, but you kind of weren't friends with. And he had interned in Hollywood the summer before our senior year. And, and he told me, I was just like, what does that even mean? And he told me what he's just like, Oh yeah, I just read scripts and told him what I thought. I was just like, that's a thing you can do in Hollywood. I was just like, if this dude can get a internship, <laughs> then I should be able to. And, and he, he also inspired me to come out. So it's basically Shawshank, uh, Josh Golson and Shannon worry. <laughs> So your first gig in this town as an intern doing anything was what? My very first gig was working security at movie premieres. Uh, I I met a girl in my building who was a manager of it's still the the main company SMS that's at every premiere. She yeah. was like a manager there, and I had a suit because I had like you know gone that that corporate gig that internship and she's like oh do you want to come be a security guard i'll give you 50 bucks i was just like absolutely can we swear on this or not really you can do whatever okay. you want uh, i was just like fuck yeah i want to go work secure like i've never been to a movie premiere 
And so, and I still see some of the people when I go to premieres, I still see some of the people that I worked with when I was a security guard. And so I did that, like I did that a ton. I had a bunch of unpaid internships. I was actually fired from an unpaid internship, which is, is, is a real viable thing. Uh, and I actually, that's gotta be one of the lowest moments in a person's career when you get fired from a job you're not getting paid at. That's correct. I, that did happen. And what's even worse is it was at New Regency, which is right outside your window, uh, practically. Uh, and I had to enroll in Santa Monica Community College just to take the unpaid internship that I was subsequently fired from after three weeks. But I still passed the class, which was a, a nice thing because I wrote uh, my final paper about being fired from my unpaid internship. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what's your first uh, entry into the business, per se? I mean, when I'm not talking about movie premiere thing, but it's something where you're actually working in an office or a place where there is actual you know, business being done. In, in... I, well... Uh, well, UTA is the the short answer, though. In my own UTA being United, United Talent, Talent Agency, one it, of the top uh, agencies in the in the world. But in, in a weird way, I think I feel like all those other experiences was what got me to UTA in the first place. I was also uh, overnight food expediter at the Standard Hotel for over two years on Sunset. So I worked in the rest. I, I've always felt I've always worked in restaurants. If you can't work in a, the restaurant industry, you shouldn't work in the, in Hollywood because it's essentially all a service industry. So I had, so by the time I got UTA, uh, gone to UTA, which was a whole other story, how that happened. Um, you know, I, I, it's, I felt like I had a good foundation, but I was still very much on the outside looking in. And then once I got in, I was just like, Oh, well, all these kids who were handed these jobs don't give a shit about them. So it's going to be a lot easier for me because I'm so excited to be here, and I've worked for two and a half years doing all this random shit to to get here. How did you now? How did you get to there? And did you start in the mailroom at UTA, or did you start on somebody's desk? I got there because a, a good friend of mine, Yoni Brenner, who's a great writer, was staying on my sofa, and he knew Peter Benedict, who's one of the founders of UTA and is a big Michigan supporter. And Yoni was just like, "Oh yeah, I heard about this party that at Peter's house for the Michigan Film Department." And I was just like, Yoni, I got to go to that party because that's how I could get a job. And we went. We weren't invited, but we were able to get in. These nice ladies kind of took uh, mercy on us and let us in. And uh, I spoke to Peter Benedict for probably 90 seconds at that at his party. And uh, the next day I woke up with a, a job offer. Uh, and that was on my 25th birthday. So that was nine years ago. And uh, th he literally changed my life with that one phone call. So uh, Actually, you changed your life because what you did was you decided to take the risk. You went out to a party you weren't invited to where you knew the guy was who was going to probably have the ability to take you where you want to go. And you figured out a way to navigate and get in. And you got in and you spoke to the guy and, and you didn't know how much time you'd have with him. So you made the best of the time you had and you actually created that opportunity for yourself that took you to that step. Well, thank you. That sounds a lot better when you say it than if I had said it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I, I, I took my life into my own hands, Barry Katz, and that's where it ended up. <laughs> But uh, no, thank you. Uh, I, no, I'm, I've done it a few times too, but that was watching Caligula. Anyways, <laughs> <I was. laughs> so yeah, so then I, I, I did go into the mailroom at UTA 
And then uh, talk and it, about the mailroom experience, and talk about somebody who was in the mailroom, or people that were in the mailroom, maybe possibly that went on to that are in the business now doing things. Because this is the interesting thing about working at companies, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with this, is that anyone listening out there or watching this is that you go, you work in any company. I don't care if you're working in an accounting firm, if you're working in an agency, a management company, or you know, at, at, at a film studio. All these people are working there, and all of them generally are nice to you. There's always a few people who, you know, are playing mind games with you, but generally everybody's nice. But no one actually tells you the actual truth of what they are thinking in their head, which is, look, motherfucker, I'm getting to that next next level ahead of you, Mm -hmm. okay? It's me. I'm the fucking guy who's going to get there and I'm not I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you don't get there before me, but you're not going to know how I'm doing it. And I'm either going to work harder than you, I'm going to talk to certain people and kiss their asses, I'm going to read that extra script, I'm going to do whatever it is. And what happens is when you work in a, a situation like that, if you were to on paper write down all the names of the people that you worked with at UTA in that mailroom during that year or however long you were working, and when you were an assistant, if you were to write down the names of all the assistants and put you on it and look down that list, how many are the president of production of a major company? You can count them on half a hand. And so that's what I think is important for our listeners and our viewers is the fact that it's important to know what it was about you. And I know you're a humble guy, but the important thing about knowing what it takes to break through a situation when there's so many people who have a chance to overtake you, but you need to break through the pack and get to the next level. So how did you do that at UT? How did you get to the next level? Well, I think although I think I agree with you with what people are thinking, but the 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 thing is that they're thinking it, but they're not really doing it, and they're not they're not implementing it, and not not like the crazy like you know aggressive you know stabbing people in the back stuff. Maybe that's going on, but I I just feel like most people don't do the things they say they're going to do. So if you really want something and you're willing to put in the work and you treat people well and you do that consistently enough and and once in a while you get a break like going and meeting Peter Benedict or 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 meeting Craig Brewer at Sundance which is my job uh after UTA if you if you treat people well and you do good work and you're excited to be there and and you're smart and 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 you get lucky eventually these things happen sometimes it happens in 2 days sometimes it can take 2 years sometimes it takes 20 years there's no rhyme or reason to the timeline but I was just so amazed that people could actually, and I'm still, I'm still literally amazed that I get paid to do what I get to do. And I don't think that will ever change. And so it doesn't feel like work. It feels like, uh, it's just something that I love doing and I'm doing it with friends and people that I love working with and people I was frankly fans of before I even knew them. So it's like when you get your, find yourself in that situation, you want to do as much of it as, as humanly possible. And so you go from, uh, you're at UTA, but you sort of probably realize to yourself, I don't really want to be an agent. You know, this is a great learning experience. I don't want to do this. Tell us how the Sundance Channel thing came about and what what that was all about. 
Um, yeah, I was about to get fired from UTA. Actually, <laughs> I've been fired. I've probably been fired from like six or seven jobs over the over the years. Why uh, do you think? Because this is fascinating. Because I, you know, uh, the people who uh, haven't experienced being fired before, and and those of us who have, uh, me being somebody who's been fired several times in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I can't even. I, I think I've been fired about as many times as the credits on your IMDb page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. What was it about you that made you keep getting fired? Was it because you were giving the uh, impression that you just didn't give a shit anymore because it wasn't the kind of lane you wanted in the world? Or were you just purposely doing things to hopefully get fired? No, no. Just general indifference. Like when I'm passionate about something, I go all the way. And if I'm not passionate about something, like if I'm not passionate about cleaning the booths at the standard at 4 a.m., and that means someone's going to give me a demerit, then I accept that demerit. I actually, they would give us demerits. And I was friends with the manager, so I would have like 20 like infractions in my standard employee, you know, file. But then uh, new management came in and they reviewed everyone's uh, employee files and saw that I was always getting in trouble. And, and, uh, they fired me. <laughs> and then at UTA, I loved UTA. I got along really well with the boss, with my boss, Shauna Eddy, who was in the MP uh, lit department. Um, but some other people in her area didn't really like me uh, for various reasons. Um, not the, I don't know. It's just like a personality, like everyone at age, I love them now, but you know, they're like, there's so much delusions of grandeur at an agency. And there was this unintentional comedy as far as the eye could see. So I was just like having fun. And Sean and I had a very, uh, we were just like friends. And like, if she, if I was mad at her or something, I'd yell at her. She'd yell at me. She'd like demand that I like call this person. And I would say, I'm not calling that person. Cause I told you like two hours, two hours ago, you were supposed to call that person. And she ignored me then. So then I would ignore her. It's kind of like talking to like a girl in a bar, like kind of like when you want to be nice and when you kind of want to be a dick, that sort of thing. And we got along great, but some other people did not like. Uh, Except in the bar, when you're a dick to a girl, she wants to go out with you. Yeah, yeah. At the yeah, agency, yeah. when you're a dick to them, they want to fire you. Uh, well, yeah. Well, Sean didn't want to fire me. Other people did. I won't. I won't name. I won't name them. But it was just. It did run you its course. Name anybody you want, by the That's way. That's all right. Uh, they're still there. So then, but Sean was at, a part of the the indie packaging group. So I, I was just like, well, let me, she told me these people are going to want to fire you. I said, well, let me just go to Sundance and and see what happens. And I saw. A movie there called Hustle and Flow, which I I fell in which love with. Is unbelievable! I saw it there as well. I was blown away. Which screening? Do you remember? I don't remember which screening, but I just I was just stunned. Uh, yeah, I was at the Racket Club like that Wednesday morning, and I was just like, and that's the perfect movie to see when you're about to get shit canned from a job because it's all about you know like following your dreams. And I love that movie. I still love that movie. And uh, what I loved about Sundance, which is what I also love about comedy, like you were saying in the opening, everyone's just kind of there together. At an agency, everyone like, oh, you you work for this person. You shouldn't be talking to that assistant. They they're above you in like the whole assistant world, and which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And at Sundance, I just saw Craig Brewer walking down Main Street after that movie, and I introduced myself to him, and we hit it off. And a week later, I was working for him. And so it was the perfect thing to go back and tell all the people at UTA that I was leaving but to go you, work for Craig now, Brewer and stuff. Now let's Lane. talk about that. When you were at Sundance. Um, and Craig Brewer, did you have a plan? I'm going to search this guy out and make an impression on him. Or were you just floating through the streets and it was random? Uh, I knew at some point I was going to be able to talk to him because, um, because 
UTA rep the film and I was going to see him at some sort of function, but then, so I didn't talk to him after the screening because there were literally like a hundred people waiting and it just would have been easy to get lost in the shuffle. But then before that function, I saw him on main street and I just went up and introduced myself and I told him that was a great fucking movie. And we ended up talking for like 15 minutes. Again, another example of, you know, you have a person who is about to get fired uh, whose life technically isn't going the way he planned it to go at that point in time. And instead of just sitting back and saying, woe is me, uh, things aren't going well, I'm a fucking loser, I've gotten fired from all these jobs, I didn't write the, the num- I didn't write my initials MF on the bathroom chart at 2 in the morning, I'm going to take me out of here at the standard. You go and you make it a point to take matters into your own hands. You go, you find a guy, you go up to him and talk to him, and again, you create an opportunity for yourself. You make an impact, and again, you get the gig. Uh, Yeah. Well, I was very fortunate, very fortunate. Um, Well, I mean, I think people just know when you're passionate about something and like you're not full of shit, and people kind of feed off of that. And he knew I loved the movie, his producing partner was also looking for help, Stephanie Elaine, and and I met with them that when I got back from Sundance, and they said let's do it. And then I was with them for two and a half years. And what were you doing there? I started off as their assistant and uh, went immediately into production on a movie that Stephanie had going, which was separate from her company with Craig. And that was my first real on set experience, which was great because it's just like living Project Greenlight. I'd loved Project Greenlight was one of was how I learned how Hollywood worked when I moved out here because that was right when that show came on. And I was just like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like watching like Chris Moore, like try and put these movies together. I thought was the greatest thing. And I was like, Oh, this just feels like project Greenlight. I kind of know what this feels like. And I, and, and also coming from the agency world, like it was just, I was just very, it was very easy to handle that pace. And I, I just got along well with everyone and just became friends with everyone. And then, um, the, you know, uh, hustle and flow was, so I worked on, on Stephanie's movie and then uh, hustle and flow after Sundance and then Craig's next movie, black snake moan. And we had this overall deal at Paramount as part of the hustle and flow deal. So then they promoted me to head up development for their company. So uh, it was great. I mean, I got to work on basically so three you go movies. for, you start off being an assistant Mm-hmm. And within two years, you're the head of production or whatever it is. Uh, development. development. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Within two years, you go from being an assistant to the... I mean, that's incredible. What were you doing that gave them the confidence in you that, that said that you could make that happen? I don't know. You have to ask Stephanie and Craig. I mean, I, I was just doing what I love to do. I mean, I, I was out hustling. I was meeting people. I was helping on everything I could. I was reading scripts. I was bringing in projects. I was just like out in the arena, so to speak. And uh, it was just, again, like the simplest thing to say is like, I, I, I can't, I, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do these things like this is a real job that exists in the world. So uh, I just loved it. So I was doing as much of it as humanly possible. And that basically has never changed. And that's, that's what led me to, to funny or die. And, and talk about that transition from Sundance channel to funny or die. Well, it wasn't Sundance channel. I just met those guys at Sundance. Oh God, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, 
So, so I was at Paramount working with Craig and Stephanie, and then their overall deal ended with the writer's strike. So my first day of unemployment was the first day of the writer's strike. But then I ended up getting unemployment checks, which was another great thing. Like the state of California was just sending me money for no reason. <laughs> and I didn't need much money to live on. So I had some money saved up. I was getting unemployment checks. And even before that job ended, like development is boring. Like development is the worst thing in the world. Like I always thought like, what's a producer that doesn't get anything made? It's just someone who goes to <laughs> meetings seriously <laughs> and so i started i started putting together projects and and i was very at my brother who started off as a journalist who was working for the new york times and foreign affairs magazine uh he did a total 180 and moved out here and now he's a writer and director who also works at funnier die we were able to at the time sell some web series while i still work for craig and stephanie totally totally separate i would we would sneak in and shoot stuff on paramount's lot you know on the weekend while you know the people weren't driving around and throwing us off and so we sold web series at the time because at the time people thought they could then in turn sell the web series which did not happen and so you so you decide now um that you're going to try your hand as a filmmaker well, I just wanted to produce. I just wanted to make shit. But you never, and, but you never done it before. So you just decided, hey, let's get some cameras. Let's yeah, get exactly. a couple of friends to do something. Hold some lights. Get a couple of pizzas, yeah, we, a we, couple of beers, and yeah, exactly. And write some stuff. Were you writing it, or were you relying on other people to write? The, no, my brother wrote the vast majority of stuff. He was the writer and director. I was the producer. Got it. So the first uh, thing you uh, made. What was that about, and what kind of people did you cast in it, and uh, how did we, that go? It was great. We did, we did a whole, uh, we did a, a little short film called "We Got Jesus," where like the, we pretended that Jesus was like a really hot movie star, and like how like this producer and this mute, this studio executive were all really excited because they Jesus like he confirmed him attached himself to a project <laughs> and I got a great actor from black snake Moan, Michael Raymond James, who has gone on to be in a ton of things. Uh, he's a great actor. He was in, he was in terriers opposite, uh, Donald Logue. And, um, he played Jesus and we, and we, we ended up making as much stuff as possible. And actually the, uh, the first thing we sold to some like I film or Adam film, some version of that, they were good. They they were going to buy it. We were we were negotiating. Then everyone who was there got fired, and so the whole thing went away. You can but, tell that's the running theme of this podcast: getting fired. Everybody, yeah. But we had this great cast. I just, and so then I just financed it myself. And in that cast, it was it was way too ambitious at the time. It was called Adam Fowler Must Get Laid. And it was all <laughs> about a kid named Adam Fowler. And it was kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure thing where we were trying to like make it very interactive as to what would happen. And Harris Whittles played Adam Fowler. Uh, Anthony Jeselnik is in it. So nice. the cast was Harris Whittles, Anthony Jeselnik from the Jeselnik Offensive, Wyatt Cenac, who was just on The Daily Show for six years, uh, Brent Weinbach, who's one of my favorite, you know, alternative comedians, and uh, Michael Bush, who started the Midnight Show at UCB, and we just started going to UCB shows to cast it, and and you could go up and talk to anyone after the show. I mean, everyone's just broken. And- UCB, for those of you who don't know, the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is one of the most uh, incredible um, 
sketch comedy and improvisational um, breeding ground there mm-hmm. is in, in the country right now. Yeah. So we just cast it all out of UCB. And even though the whole project got canceled, I still just spent my own money to make it. And I'm so glad that I did because I, I'm still I'm still friends with all those guys. And uh, this was before they were doing anything. This was 2007. That was the we we made that in the summer of 2007, and then um, then the strike happened, and I just started, and then all those other kids, all the comedians, started hiring me to produce their web series because they had no one to actually produce this stuff. Because I I would do I would help cast it, I would do the budget budget schedule, I would get craft services, I'd hire everything that I would take care of everything that creative funny people don't want to have to worry about. And my brother was doing stuff. I was getting hired to do stuff. I mean, and when I say hired, I'm talking about like, you know, 20 bucks or Subway or whatever. I just didn't care. I wanted to make as much stuff as possible because also during the strike, there were no other jobs. So I didn't care about going and working in development. I was having fun making this web stuff. And Funny or Die ended up featuring a bunch of the things that I produced. And that's how I got my job at Funny or Die. So take me through the process of how did it go down? Like who calls you? Take me through the meeting. Because you know, as you know, in any situation, it's very rare that anybody calls you and says, uh, yeah, we want you for this gig. Um, Just sign right here. Mm -hmm. Normally you have to go in, you have to take a meeting, and you have to be in a situation where you went over the gig and you get the gig. So take me through and our audience how that happened. Through some of the videos I was working on, I met Jerry O'Connell, who's a, a great guy. And I love Jerry. I, I, I was uh, privy to working with him on a show called Camp Wilder with uh, Hillary Swank, Jay Moore, and uh, himself and Mary Page Keller and Tina Majorino. So, uh, oh wow! Well, yeah, Jerry O'Connell might be the only person with a longer IMDb page than me. <laughs> he's a uh, he's been in a ton of stuff. Um, so we were wor- I was working with Jerry on stuff, and uh, he was buddies with Owen Burke at Gary Sanchez Productions, who was also a consultant at Funnier Die, and we ended up featuring. But we started sending stuff that we were working on and they kept on featuring it. And then I just got into a little email conversation with Owen and uh, asked him if he, you know, if he'd grab a coffee sometime. And he thankfully said yes. And then I, as soon as I saw Owen, I recognized him from all this UCB shows I'd seen him in. And, and he's really funny. And we really hit it off. And it turned out that Funnier Die... I got the job at Funnier Die because I was already doing the job before I worked at Funnier Die. I was already putting together these videos really quickly with good people for no money and like making stuff. And that's really what Funnier Die needed at the time. So I met Owen for the first time in June 2008. And then, and then it took a while, but then I, I met up, then, then I met with Adam McKay and Chris Henchy and Andrew Steele, who they hired as the creative director and Dick Glover, the CEO. And uh, so this summer, and they hired me, and so this, as the first producer at Funnier Die, so this summer marks uh, five years at Funnier Die. So you start there as as an in-house producer, mm-hmm. but you're not an in-house producer anymore. So how do you get Well, from... I am. I am. My, my role has just kind of grown organically with the company. So it's, I was... It's grown tremendously. So <laughs> talk about how uh, it's grown. I know, again, uh, you are a very humble guy, but talk about how... Because, again, 
a startup company. You don't know where it's going to go. Take me through the first uh, few weeks and months. When you go there, do you have like a feeling, an instinct like, this is going to be fucking huge, or do you have an instinct? When I got like- that job, I knew it was going to change my life forever. I knew it was the opportunity of a lifetime, so at that moment, I dedicated literally my entire life to it, and not much has changed. Like, Funnier Die is my whole life, but I love it. So I I knew as soon as I... Yes, I knew. I mean, I... I, I don't know how you couldn't know. Like, it was so there for the taking with just the way that media is, was changing, is con, is currently changing, how YouTube, online video, the world of sales, the world of social media, all this stuff is right there. So, I of course I knew. And that's why I do, devoted so much time to it, because I knew I could sell Funnier Die to Hollywood. I knew I could get people excited about it. I, we had, we still do, we had so many great, funny people, Seth Morris, Owen Burke, Jake Szymanski, Eric Appel, Ryan Perez, Andrew Steele. I was like, these are such great, funny people. All they needed, they needed someone to just bring these opportunities in and like get celebrities in and go get that person in the video and just like bring a sense of urgency to making stuff. And, um, that's, that's what I love doing. So I, 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 it's, it's the best. I mean, I told you, I told your staff earlier, like the reason I have to leave early is because I'm going to see the, the first cut of Anchorman two. like, that's insane. Like I, I mean, I saw I saw Anchorman one at Century City. You know, the for the first time it opened up, and and the first time I read the script for Anchorman was at New Regency before I was fired from the unpaid internship. So <laughs> it, it, it's nuts, and and so I, I love it, and um, you know, it's and I love the people that I work with. So I I it, I don't want to sound presumptuous. I totally knew. And so then I was just like, okay, well, let's just go do it. Let's just get it done. Well, one of the things about your your job that always uh, intrigued me and fascinated me is because when it starts off, um, you know, you're, you have to start off with the first video and then the second video. And the th- like when you're starting something like that, you don't start off with like, you know, 2,000 videos or one. You start off with one, maybe two, maybe 50 and and all of a sudden it grows to how many videos or digital shorts are on the website now uh if you had to guess an approximate number we'd have to pull out a calculator i mean what we what i oversee is the funnier die exclusive videos so we're at a point now where we make about 25 original videos a month um and, and, you know, it, it is one video at a time. I mean, I've, I've probably been a part of, I don't know, a thousand celebrity videos. Which is just incredible. A, a thousand videos. You've done everybody from Natalie Portman to, uh, you know, Paris Hilton. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just amazing. Lindsay Lohan. Uh, um, <laughs> and I, I, lo- I, I love the company that Natalie was just grouped in. Like Natalie Portman, uh, Paris Hilton. Uh, Paris Hilton. Lindsay. They're all great gals. All great gals. Literally the parrot from Beretta. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, I think uh, Jeffrey Ross first pointed me out in that direction, the parrot from Beretta. But, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which you did a, a one with uh, Jeff Ross as yeah. well, which is uh, hilariously funny. Um, so what I wanted to share was is that does it, it it never ceases to amaze me that you put something up there there's no advertisement for anything there's no billboard that says 
you know, watch this video here, watch this here. So you have something like the landlord, which I hope you'll uh, take this the right way, literally could have been shot by a high school student. You know what I mean? It's like that was the style. The style was, hey, it's going to be down and dirty, and it's going to look like we just, just somebody at home pulled out a camera and did this thing. It's not going to be the stylistically amazing thing, but that was the style. Mm-hmm. So here, you know, you have a thing that very little production value that people would normally think, okay, I got to do this. I got to make this transition. I got to light this a certain way. I got to do this a certain way. It's almost like a home movie kind of feel to it. And that's the thing that has probably, God knows, 100, 200 million people that Mm -hmm. have watched that. And then there's other things that you've done where literally you have people doing these stylized things. People are in makeup. They have costumes, everything like that. And there's like 16 views over like seven months. And you're like, how does this happen? Like, do you, does it ever amaze you that like some things that you think are going to be huge are like die on the vine and things that you're like, okay, well, let me just give this a shot because I'm a friend of this agent and I want him to help out this client. And then that thing explodes. Yeah. I mean, no one knows, which is why you got to make stuff you're excited about making and you're passionate about and, and just see where it falls. I mean, it, and, and, and comedy is obviously very subjective and, and there's a, there's a lot more when Will did the landlord, no one had seen a movie star in a home video type movie on the internet before. So we can't, this all is about Will and McKay and Chris Henshi. When you start with those guys, I, I felt like, how do you mess this up? Because they, they were such early adopters to it. That, um, that particular video, how er- early was that in the process of the? That was the very first video. The very first one. Mm-hmm. So the website launches. They launch the website. There's one video up there. Correct. And that's it. Now, yeah. this is something that is also interesting in a different light. Um Maddie, uh, my uh, one of my producers here works at uh, J Moore Sports, and they do uh, this commercial for DollarShaveClub.com. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the company just went out and made his own video, his own digital short, and it's incredibly funny mm-hmm. and special. In probably inspired by your company and your, I don't even know what you call it. It's not a website. It's literally like a web network that you have. And his company has just blown up because he took the risk, put his money, and he was an improv actor, similarly to you, which you started doing your own thing. You said, fuck it. I'm going to get a camera. I got a dollar and a dream. Let me see what happens. And him and his world has blown up. It's not your world, but it's a similar kind of thing where that happens. So Mm -hmm. here Adam McKay and Will get together. They put this thing together. They're experienced They've done incredibly high-quality videos, but they take a chance on doing this one concept, and it just goes and explodes. So tell me, on that light, obviously when you saw that, you got a feeling like, hey, this is going to be huge. Tell our audience something that you watched and you were a part of and you're working on and you're about to launch it, and you're like, listen, you know, I really, really think this is awful 
and it went on to get millions and millions and millions of hits. And then tell me something that you watched and you looked at and you said, this thing is going to be the biggest thing and literally like very few people watched it. Well, I'm going to have to, on, on the ones that I didn't like that ended up doing well, I, I couldn't even, I, I mean. I'll give you an example. When I was interviewing Doug Herzog, the president of Comedy Central, when he got to Fox in 1999, the family guy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was there when the family guy entered uh, on the air on the network and he just never really got it. He never really understood. He never really believed in it. And consequently, in many ways, I think he was involved in trying to make it go away and it finally got it to go away or was one of the influential people to get it to go away and then he said later on it came back to haunt him and got back on the air and it's on tbs all the time against yeah. all of his programming and since he said he sort of made amends with seth mcfarlane for you know really not understanding or getting it so i don't mean to you know put you on the spot but i think you know something that not not because of the talent not because of the writing just the way the the the, the short was it just didn't move you and you thought hey i don't i don't think this one's gonna win and it won i i would actually have to think about that i i you're like reagan at the iran contra hearings it's unbelievable i i, I, I don't there there's <laughs> I mean, the internet's just crazy. I mean, I, I, it, there are, there are some videos that I personally haven't loved, but I still knew made sense to make. Like there's one, I won't get like that features two really hot, famous actresses. I, I, I personally, it wasn't my type of comedy, but I knew it would be huge and, uh, and we paid for it to get made and it was huge. Um, there have been, you know, topical pieces that I thought were really funny and, and kind of too funny and too smart for their own good. I mean, the, the internet's about like lowest common denominator stuff. So what we try to do at Funny or Die is a little bit to have our cake and eat it too, to make things that are a little bit better than what's, what else is out there, but still connects with a broad enough audience that kind of generates, you know, uh, big numbers and, and advertisers and things like that. Um, so I don't mean to duck the com the question, but like, I don't, the beautiful, it's like we're running a studio. So, and, and the, the, the cost of getting into the game is so low. We're not talking about the lone ranger and deciding whether or not to spend $250 million. We're talking about deciding to spend $2,500. So like, if I don't personally love some joke or idea, but it's got this cool person in it. They're, they will do anything to get it made and get cool people in it. And, 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 you know, we, I'm pretty confident that someone's going to find it funny. Let, let's just go out and make it. And, and because funny or die is the exclusive videos that we make is just one portion of the audience. I mean, still we get tons of views from people uploading their own videos. Um, and, and I think that's how it's different than the traditional Hollywood system where, you know, it's so much harder to get into it. Like the digital side of content and digital content and how cheap it is to make these things can like totally opposite to your story in Boston when people are lugging around these huge cameras. Now it's so easy to get stuff done and it makes it, you know, it evens the playing field to some degree. And, and that's what I love about, you know, the internet. And so, um, when you look at some of the, uh, 
situations that have happened in Funny or Die, one of the things that always really, really uh, was interesting to me is when the show uh, that you put together for HBO, and here you go, you have uh, one of the first uh, web networks that actually got so much attention that the one of the most prestigious networks in the world decides to put your brand on HBO and so much hope, so much promise. You have millions of millions of people watching for free and then goes on a pay cable service and let's face it, it goes on and it goes off and for some reason when you have a show on HBO, it's very rare that a show gets canceled because it's a pay cable service and mm -hmm. they give a lot of things a shot. So if you have something that gets canceled on HBO, it really has to be in a situation where something's not working. What do you think happened there and why do you think the audiences who came in droves by the millions and millions on the Internet didn't come when it got on HBO and you were choosing some of the greatest moments that you'd ever produced? Well, we were on for two seasons, which was good. I mean, sketch comedy is tough. And, and, and I think what's been nice about funnierdie.com is that you're writing for the internet and what makes sense for the internet is something that's different than what makes sense, um, you know, for a sketch TV show. And I think that was just kind of more a continuation of giving people a lot of creative freedom, which is a big part of Funny or Die. So certainly it's not like in its 10th season and it is like this monster show, but thematically to what we do, sensibility-wise, giving artists a lot of freedom to do what they want to do and, and to kind of be weird and, and alternative or, or whatever it is, uh, I think it was a success. I think people liked it within the community. I mean, parts of it, you know, is pretty esoteric. Some of it was amazing and some of it wasn't. And that's, that's comedy. I mean, that's every episode of SNL. That's the front page of Funny or Die. That's, you know, the daily show. Some things are great and some things aren't. And because, you know, if you're batting 300 in comedy, <laughs> you're doing pretty well. And so, uh, you know, but it was important because that's the show that launched or got people thinking about us as more than just a website. And now we have probably 12 TV shows either on the air in production in various states of, uh, you know, post or prepping or whatever. And, and across every network you can pretty much come up with. So it, it was important to kind of help start changing people's perception about what funnier die could mean. It's not just a website. It's a whole, you know, studio. I want to talk a little bit about, because uh, you're the kind of guy who has like these, a lot of people don't know this about you, but you have a lot of inspirational things. You talk about a lot of sayings that you use over and over again that that, that sort of mean something to people. And um, I want to talk about a few of those, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, this I, I'm curious to see what your research dug up. This probably amounted to asking my assistant. <laughs> Um, these are some of the things you're most famous for saying that okay. people really uh, rally around you. Okay, I'll go with it, BK. I'll go uh, with it. The first one is, I've never seen Caligula. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. That, that's, that's true. That's, that's the a, mantra. That's a, um, sell the dream. 
What does that mean? <laughs> well, that is good research. Uh, <laughs> I I do talk about selling the dream. Um, everything we're talking about is just storytelling. It's just getting people excited about something they don't really have to do. So you have to sell the dream of of what it can be, what it's going to be, how the, the experience they're going to have doing it, the how they're going to feel and, and how they're going to feel about themselves and, and how, you know, how it could potentially change, you know, people's perception of them. And um, you're not really even selling comedy. You're just kind of selling the experience of collaboration and creativity and moving quickly. And basically all the things because everyone, whether they're you're you know you're as big as Will Ferrell or Dane Cook or just some kid out of UCB, you just want to make the things you're excited about. And so, if you can get people fired up to do that, um, it's all about selling that dream and getting. Because everyone in Hollywood says no, and I want we always want Funnier Die to be a place where, as much as humanly possible, we sell yes, and then that's how you get momentum going and you get all the people who it's way easier and people keep their jobs by saying no, but that's, that's how so much, you know, mediocre things get made. I always say, you know, it's all about turning no's into yeses and just my relationship with you. I've sent you things that I knew were not right for your, uh, network. Um, but true to form, many times you have said, you know what, I'm going to put this on the front page. I'm going to give this thing a shot. And many times they didn't go as well as they should have gone or whatever, but you took the risk. And that's the thing that always uh, impressed me about you. So I'm going to keep going here. Trust the process. What does that mean to you? Well, I just feel like the first step is always selling the dream, but there you could in order to fully sell the dream, you have to have a process in place that then executes on the dream being sold. So that's turning it over to great writers, directors, producers to then take this idea and make it great and get it seen by a lot of people. And so I just feel like if you, if you have, it's just something, it's just what I live by. Cause I, I just have it in my head and I, and it's, it's everything. It's like how you treat people and it's how, you deliver on the things you say you're going to deliver and how you're honest and all that. That's all part of the process of, of executing the dream. Classic and fascinating. Who told you all of this? This, this is actually, I put a call in the Ann Arbor. Uh, oh, there you go. Classic is, uh, <laughs> it started from our, our head of sales, Ed Wise, who would just say every, and he would say everything he would always write back classic and he would make the s's dollar signs i'd be like and we would just make fun of him and just it just turned into a thing where you're just like like classic ed wise or like cla or like someone calls up and like says some crazy idea and you just get off the phone and you just yell out classic and like it just sums it all up that's classic leave me out of it Leave me out of it is about uh, is inspired by Billy Eichner, who is one of my favorite people in the world. We're going into our third season of Billy on the Street, and uh, he, I love that show, and I love I love God, I love Billy. Oh, can I just say how that show came to you? I would, I would love that. He was doing his thing on YouTube. I didn't know who he was, but Daryl, our page editor, uh, and Chris Bruss, our head of branded, like sent me this video of Billy Eichner, and I was hooked. Now, I'm going to stop you here for a second because this is also a running theme about these podcasts is that for those of you who work in a position which you would consider to be a lesser position at a company than many others, 
always know how important you are and how your voice can be heard. And so even though you don't, you're not in the position of the president of production, you can always take the risk and take an executive aside and say, hey, check this out. Going back to Doug Herzog, uh, one of the famous stories is that one of his young development people said, hey, listen, in the hallways, and look, could you come in this conference room and take a look at this? Popped in a VHS tape. And it was the South Park Christmas um, card. And that young executive that took a risk, uh, her name was Debbie Liebling, because of that risk and because she moved the needle in doing what she did with Doug, she went on to be promoted at Comedy Central and did incredible things. There was nominated for, uh, I believe, three Emmy Awards with South Park. And then she went on to get uh, huge jobs in film as president of production at Universal Pictures and... And she was also senior vice president of 20th Century Fox. And, and she went on to be uh, the person who oversees uh, movies like Dodgeball and Borat. So here's another example. If you're out there and you're working at a company, uh, you can make an impact and take the risk and take your boss aside or somebody aside and say, hey, listen, listen, I want you to look at this. This is something special. So keep going. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I saw the the Billy Eichner clip, and I was hooked within 30 seconds because man on the street stuff is very hard, and he makes it look easy. And I got in touch with him just totally unsolicited, saying I was I watched his stuff. These guys showed it to me. It's great. We should get together and and talk and, and meet. And it turned out he was coming to LA a few weeks later, so we had a, a meeting, and he pitched me the idea for taking his man on the street act so to speak and adding a game show element to it and i was just like that is such a no-brainer and we gave him 10 grand to go make a sizzle reel and then we got i think like eight tv offers based off that sizzle reel and so the first season i was on set uh i wasn't able to be on set much but billy and i are, are really close and he went up to someone and just totally random is just like like what's the problem with like what is what is Avril Lavigne doing or and they asked they said something dumb and he just stormed away and he just yelled well leave me out of it and I and it didn't even make the show because there's so much good stuff that didn't even make the show but when I heard him say leave me out of it I was just like that is the greatest thing ever so then when again like if someone is just like you know, there's some like lame management thing that someone's asking me to to be a part of, and I just well, I'm more productive if I'm doing something else. I'll just say that's a classic leave me out of it situation. Shocking turn of events. <laughs> well, like because things do get crazy and things do like I'll just say like because well, I don't know. I mean, I'll just say that well, that was a shocking turn of events. I don't know. I just I, I'm very literal. Like there's there's nothing like, there's nothing like oh that. I just say what I like when someone when something fascinating happens. I just say fascinating because <laughs> I'm not even trying to be like that's just because it, how else do you process like the fact that we are talking about these things like they actually matter in the whole scheme of the world. But it's, it's, it's all fun. it's all happening. I do love saying that because if yeah, <laughs> this is so silly, but like. <laughs> I, if you sell the dream These and you trust your... the process, then you shouldn't you shouldn't be surprised that it's all happening. So <laughs> I'm not I'm 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 actually not even kidding. Like when all these things happen, 
I expect them to happen. Like, I don't, I just move on to the next thing. Like if you do these things, like I don't celebrate it. Like I'm just literally on to the next thing. Like, okay, that's happening. That's happening. This is where all these things. And, and I see you that, visualize you oh, have to- 100%. I know we're very fortunate to be working with the Obama administration on, on a handful of things. And I knew the first time that I went out to DC to throw a party with the, this great lady named Kimball, who's a total hustler. And I totally love her. I knew in, I knew in October of 2008, in fact, well, I'm, well, I'm not going to say what I was just going to say, because when it actually happens, I'll let you know, cause I don't want to jinx it. But I knew all of this was part of a plan to lead to the moment where, I've had a series of meetings in DC and, and I'm, I'm heading there uh, in a week to have a meeting with Obama and, and Valerie Jarrett about some of the things that we're working on. And, and that's exactly what should be happening. I'm not surprised about that at all because I knew if we were doing all of this for the last five years, then this was literally only a matter of time. I can't wait to meet Obama because uh, I, I, um, I took I've a, met him, but I haven't had a, a meeting with him yet. Yeah, about this. I, I remember I, uh, Jordan Peele. Yeah. I, I ran into him. Uh, I, I flew back with him from Montreal, um, and he had this great story where he talked about how um, Obama was on, I think it was Conan O'Brien, and said one of his favorite talk shows was, um, one of his favorite shows was um, Key and Peele, and he couldn't really say what his favorite sketches were, and they got inundated by all these calls and craziness and whatever. And the next day, they get a call: "We want you to meet Obama." So they go to um, the White House, and there's a line of people in the Oval Office, and they hold them back to be last. And everybody leaves, and it's Obama and the Secret Service. And Jordan was telling me uh, <laughs> that they come up to him, and the first thing Obama says to them is he taps them both on the shoulder, and he says. Boy, it's uh, hard to get a brother on television, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't. So I can't wait to what Obama tells you. Now we don't have much time left, and I, I feel bad about this, but because you got to go, but I, I have to ask you a few more things. And if I if I uh, delay you a little bit, then uh, hopefully uh, uh, it'll be okay. Because there's some important other things I want to ask about. Chauncey, <laughs> God. Chauncey was inspired by these guys that were in my fraternity in college and, and they would just, they, they were like the greatest guys and not the sharpest tools in the shed. And they would just call each other Chauncey. And we've turned <laughs> Chauncey into a word that could mean virtually anything. And, and I, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll just, I, sometimes I'll just like, someone will have like this big thing of fruit in their office and i'll just say like i'll just say look at that fruit chauncey (laughs) because it's just like and i'll just go grab some fruit or whatever i don't even realize i'm saying these things when i say it. it's just like part of like just going through the day of just you know just kind of enjoying the the ride that is entertainment i mean i don't know I was not expecting this section of the podcast. Well, that's what it's all about, the unexpected. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah, you have a lot of good ones. The best blank of my life. Well, I'm a passionate, emotional person. Like with like like this, I, actually, I had a meeting with Jerry O'Connell a few weeks ago, and uh, he came in, and and they had a, a barbecue going on, and this kid, Andrew Grissom, he he, I just said, oh, can you grab me a few hot dogs? Because Jerry and I were just hanging out, and they were like the greatest hot dogs I had ever had, 
and and Jerry had him too, and he agreed, and we just went out and thanked Andrew Grissom for making such great <laughs> hot dogs. I, I don't know. I was just like, I love saying things will be great. I, I I'm a very positive person, but I'm not delusional. Like, you know, like if if I definitely people just believe it's all part of the story. It's like if I if I think something's going to be great, I'm not just saying it. I I actually believe it's going to be great, and then if you if you sell the dream and you trust the process and, and then all these things start happening it, again, it's not something that should be surprising to you. It's just what should be. Let's wrap up with some holy shit moments. If you don't mind. Okay. What's your proudest professional moment? Ooh. Uh, well, my, my, my proudest funnier die moment is probably producing uh, prop eight, the musical, which we did with Mark Shaman and, and Adam Shankman, which is, uh, uh, came out, uh, soon after the 2008 elections. That, that was just a, a, a special day and a, and a special video and, and, and cause obviously, um, that was really cool. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't reflect on things. You know, I, I, I like, sir, I don't think like, man, I, that was a proud moment. Like, <laughs> like, I was just like, I, I, I honestly believe like the, it, nothing surprises me because if I, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then, then I'm surprised if it doesn't happen, but it actually it never doesn't not happen. Actually. Does that make any sense? Like we've had shows that didn't go. I mean, we're reselling like two or three shows. Now, if it's meant to be, it will happen. If you stay on it, like all you have to do is not stop trying. And, um, so I don't know what, what's happened to that has even been surprising because if you, I mean, even like the small independent film that my brother and I made, like we did more with that fucking movie than anyone could have done in terms of just marketing it and, and getting people to believe in it. And like, that could have just literally gone away in a second so many times, but we just love doing it. And we've got the show coming up on discovery that, I mean, it, it might be the greatest thing we've ever done. It's, it's, I love sports. It's, it's hard knocks. You know, that show on NFL hard knocks, yes. hard knocks meets duck dynasty. That's the <laughs> show. I'm not even kidding. I'll send you the sizzle reel and you'll be like, Oh shit, that is hard knocks meets uh, duck <laughs> dynasty. And discovery does not believe, discovery is actually in the building that we're we're recording this on the 15th floor yeah and they they have no expectations for this show and we're gonna fucking blow them away they don't even know what's going to hit them and we have this huge marketing plan already put together and i've got sponsors already lined up we have huge athletes ready to tweet it and 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 get it out in social media and like it's going to be undeniable. There is nothing on TV like the show. I'm, I'm serious. Like when you see it, you'll be like, oh yeah, you weren't just talking shit. Like that is undeniable. Well, that's one of my biggest themes of these podcasts is being undeniable. And because <laughs> if you're undeniable, no one can stop you. Well, there you go. Well said. Your biggest disappointment professionally besides this podcast. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't, I just don't, frame things in way of disappointments like it just no i just don't think about that that's so i i hate answers like that but like i would have to like get back to you two two days from now like to actually think about what i've found disappointing i what i find disappointing is people who don't take advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of them i'd say get the like either like funnier die is the greatest place 
in Hollywood. It's there's nothing even close to it. So if people really embrace that and and make it their own, I love it. If someone just kind of like walks around for a few years wondering what to do, then I'd say get the fuck out of here, you know. No. So so but that's that's all that's up to them. You can you can only motivate people so much. Like if someone wants it, they'll go after. It. That's why you always have to hire people who really want to do something. Like it is such a waste of time trying to convince creative people to do something they don't want to do because even if they do end up doing it, it's going to suck. And lastly, wrapping up, tell me uh what advice you would give to a young person who wants to get in the business in your side of the business behind the scenes who might be from graduating from either UCLA or University of Florida or UMass or Ann Arbor and has come out here and is working all these shitty jobs, getting fired left and right. Any advice for them of how they can get through and break through and get to the point where you are doing something that's really a dream and as a follow-up question talk to the performers the sketch performers the comedians the filmmakers and those people who've never really done anything in their lives or at least they have a shot to do something or are thinking about doing something how do they get to the point where they actually get your attention get hollywood's attention and then move to the next level in this business well that's a lot to think about um (laughs) i mean if you want this you just have to do it (laughs) no no one no one is going i don't know why your nice staff is laughing at me so much uh no one is going to hand this to They're you. laughing at me, probably. Okay, well, I, I don't know. No, they're laughing at me, not with me. All right. Uh, <laughs> no, no one is going to hand, hand this to you. So if you want to do it, you just have to do it. There's so much talk. There's so much wasted time. Like, just go out and, like, buy, and use that energy in a positive way and, and, and embrace things that you're afraid of doing. And just who cares? Like, if you it's never been easier to go out and, and make things or, or figure out what form of entertainment makes sense for you, whether you're a writer, director, actor, producer, whatever, there's so many different ways to be involved in entertainment. And I think it's knowing who you are and what your strengths are and positioning those in a way that make the most of them and, 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 and create an environment where you can differentiate yourself from other people. Um, whether that's, you're great at, you know, writing monologue jokes or a screenplay or, you know, being a sound guy. It's all like, who are you? What are you excited about? What are you going to do great and differentiate yourself with? And then start building up that foundation so that people trust you and, and hire you to continue to do it and how people get your, you know, someone's attention, whether it's, I don't, it's really easy to get my attention because I respond to every email that I get. <laughs> so, because I know what it's like, I can't stand people who don't respond to emails. It's just like, it bo- I, no one, everyone talks about how busy they are in Hollywood. You're not that busy. <laughs> like, let's just get serious. And so I respond to every email. So for me, it's, I mean, I respond to every unsolicited email. I mean, I even have, I mean, on LinkedIn, which I might have to get off because it's just too much. Um, Either I or uh, 
you know, Kate, my assistant, will respond just because I know what it's like to to not know anyone, and it sucks. Like moving to LA and not know anyone, like pretty much sucks. Um, so if but getting in touch with me is easy. Getting in touch with with other people, it's just doing these things, and like if. It, if you put in enough time and you you apply enough pr- that's like actually from Shawshank when he's talking about like time and pressure that's what it comes down to if you put in enough time and enough pressure like eventually that hole you know out of Shawshank will will uh will will be there and and Shannon worry erotic thrillers will be waiting for you on the other <laughs> side so you know i mean it, there's there is no secret formula like if you want to do it just do it if you don't want to do it then then move on and figure out something else cuz no one's going to give it to you but once you get into it and once once uh, you're you're it, it it doesn't even feel like work so whether it takes 2 weeks or 20 years if you really love it you're not going to care well, Mike, uh, this has been incredible. You are an amazing man. And uh, and people, I'm telling you right now, uh, and I'm going to say this to you, and uh, I hope you uh, take this the right way. Uh, people love you in this business, and people really respect you. And there isn't anyone I talk to that isn't blown away by you. And what you're doing is groundbreaking. And uh, I wish you all the success in the world. And I'm so grateful that you came on to do this show. And our audience is is really going to respond to this. Thank you so much for coming here. Well, you're welcome. Thanks uh, for the the very kind words. And and you'll have to let me know who gave away all my very ridiculous catchphrases, which I never knew were really going to be made public. But so be it. (laughs) Uh, Trust the process. I will. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. And uh, you've been listening to uh, Industry Standard uh, with myself, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain Never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.